Father, uh, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we are very, very thankful that our prayers are coming before you because of your son, Jesus. Uh, We have the promise that he is bringing our prayers into your throne room. God, what a wonderful thing. I mean, that's hard for us to imagine that as, as we are all praying here, you're processing through that and you're answering. And so, Lord, uh, thank you for giving us this new year. And, uh, Lord, we want to draw closer to you, draw nearer to you in this year to come. Help us with that. Answer our prayer in that. And the ones that are struggling with uh, health issues or relationship issues, um, maybe other hurts and things in our lives, Lord, that we would like to let go of, but it's hard to or start doing, and it's hard to start doing the things we need to. Lord, help us with those. And we know we can ask you these things in confidence in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Dean. In 1986, I was a freshman at Manhattan Christian College in Manhattan, Kansas. went there because I knew I wanted to be a minister. At the time when I went, I thought I wanted to be a youth minister the rest of my life. That lasted about 10 years and they wore me out. And so I, I had to make a few changes. But I'd gone there to study the Bible and to study ministry. When I was a freshman, I heard that we were going to be required to take some science courses. At the time, I didn't understand why. In fact, I thought, this is just ridiculous. I, I want to be a minister. I, I don't need to take science classes. But in hindsight and retrospect, I'm really glad that I had to. Now, when I was a freshman, some of the upperclassmen were talking about those science classes. It was going to require eight hours, three hours each class, and then a a lab class as well. And the upperclassmen were telling us, when it comes time to register, you're going to have to go over to Kansas State University, which was right across the street. Now, you be careful when you go over there to register for your science classes, because they're going to try to put you in biology. Biology is a very difficult class at K-State. You don't want to take it. Every one of them said the same thing. They said a good number of people have lost their hair taking biology at Kansas State University. And I wanted to hold on to my hair because I, I was going to be dating a lady pretty quickly that would fall in love with my hair. And so I, I wanted to keep it. I didn't want to take biology. So I decided that I would find some ways around that. My first move was to sign up for physical science my sophomore year. That was the first time we were going to be required to take a science class. So I went over to K-State and I did that very thing. I signed up for physical science. Did all right in the class. Didn't have any problem with it. Then I thought, okay, next year I've got to find a way out of biology. So what in the world am I going to do? I got the catalog and thumbed through looking for some different classes that I'd be able to take and I landed on the perfect one. I thought, this is my answer. I'm going to sign up for botany. That's going to be my way out of biology. And I did. I signed up for botany. And I got accepted into the class and everything was great. Until I got a notice that said they had registered too many people for that class and I was now an alternate, I would need to find another science credit. And I thought, oh no, I do not want to have to take biology. There, what am I going to do? Botany was my out. It was this answer from God. So I got the catalog and thumbed through a little bit more, and I saw that there were two other options for me. One of them was not really an option. It was physics. The prerequisites 
for physics alone would have physically killed me. So physics was not going to happen. And that left geology. And I thought, well, all right, I'll sign up for geology. No problem with that at all. And in fact, I was kind of excited about it because growing up in the state of Kansas, I'd always been fascinated by one particular type of rock, a geode. And I wasn't necessarily fascinated. In fact, at the time, I had no idea what the actual outside of a geode looked like. I was fascinated with the inside. Now, here's one that I borrowed from Stephen Patty Johnson, but this is a different one that we'll show you today. That's what the inside of a geode looks like. They're beautiful. They're mysteriously wonderful. And when you slice them open and you see the inside of that rock, you can't help but think the creator of the universe put that there and then covered it with granite or covered it with a rock on the outside and no one would ever know it was there until they split it open. Isn't that a cool thing about God that he creates things for his pleasure that if we never discover it, that does not matter to him? He still did this for his pleasure. So I grew up looking at geodes in Kansas, and I thought, all right, I'm going to go to a class that's going to show me more of what this looks like. And within just a couple of days, I saw that this is not how you discover a geode out in nature. This is how you find it. This is what they look like. Here it is up on the screen again. That's what a geode looks like. It looks like a rock. And not only does it look like a rock, it looks like every other rock. And so they put all these rocks in front of us in this geology class and told us that it would be our job by the end of the semester to identify each one of these rocks by name. And they wanted more than just rock as the name. And I, I quickly realized, huh, I'm out of my depth. I am way out of my depth. I need to get out of this class. So three weeks into it, I dropped that class, signed up for biology, and I lost my hair. So now you, know, now you know exactly what happened with that. Here's the reason I tell you that story. It isn't because I want us to spend a lot of time thinking about rocks today, but it's because of the similarities that God's Word has to a geode. A lot of times when people pick up a Bible, they feel like they're looking at a rock, just an ordinary book. A common book, maybe it's covered in leather or some kind of nice covering, but still it's just a book. They hold it in their hands, not knowing what makes it special. But if you slice open your Bible, you get right to the center of it, you discover something wonderfully beautiful, just like a geode. You find something that if you fail to ever slice it open, you will fail to ever see it. But get into it, get right into the middle of it, and you will see the beauty that surrounds it. And that beauty will continue drawing you in closer and closer and closer all the time. In fact, it gets even smaller than that. If we were able to separate out the 66 books that make up our Bible and hold each one of them in our hand, it would be exactly the same. We would hold them thinking we're holding an ordinary book, but slice into the middle of it and you'll see something beautiful. You will see something amazing, something wonderful. Put in whatever adjective you want. You'll see things that are mind-blowing and they'll pull you back to it over and over and over again. And I want to show you what I'm talking about this morning by taking just one book that we're going to spend the next several, I'm guessing, months 
studying. I don't know exactly how long it's going to last. We're going to be moving very slow because there's a lot in it. Very practical things, applicable things that are in this book. And if we'll spend the time to pull them out, it'll be like discovering gems out in the wild. It's the book of James. So I want you to turn there and then picture it as if you're holding that entire book in your hand. And as we get into it, what we're going to do is slice right into the middle of it, right into the middle of the book of James, so that you can see the beauty that is contained there. And then over the course of these next several weeks, I'm going to show you how everything pulls in to that center, how all of the beauty comes out of it as we put everything together. It's going to be like holding a geode in your hand. So if you're in the book of James now, Go right to the middle, to James chapter 4, verse 8. We're just going to read the first part of this verse. It's stunningly beautiful. James writes, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Isn't that beautiful? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That is a promise of the Bible. If you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. He wants that type of relationship with you. He wants that type of closeness. So God promises that if you take a step towards Him, He will take a step towards you. If you take two steps towards Him, He will take two steps towards you. If you run a mile towards God, He will run a mile towards you. He will help you close the gap. You draw near to God, He will draw near to you. That is such a wonderful promise that it almost seems impossible to a lot of people because all they know is distance from God. They don't know anything close. They don't know nearness. They've never experienced it. If you're in that camp, listen to me. Don't listen to me, actually. You listen to James. You draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Take it to the bank. You draw near to God. He will draw near to you. That is such an impressive statement when you understand who the author is. James was the brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote those words. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. I want you to turn back to the first chapter with me. In fact, the first verse. We're not going to make it any further than that today. Just James chapter 1, verse 1. You can see why it's going to take us a long time to get through this book. And I hope you'll be with me all the way through this study because you're going to discover gem after gem after gem. But listen to this from the first verse of the first chapter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now James understands that to draw near to God so that he will draw near to us, begins with a question. And it is a question that is given to every one of us. That question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? In his introduction of the book, he gives us his answer. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not refer to himself as the brother of Jesus. Now that's impressive in and of itself to me because if that was in your resume and you were going to write a book on behalf of the Lord, wouldn't you include that little detail? James, a brother of Jesus. You would have instant authority. James, the brother of Jesus. People would now be paying attention. Your resume is laid out there. It is laid bare. James, the brother of Jesus. But he doesn't do that. 
Instead, James chooses to show what is revealed in the middle of the book. He is drawn near to God, and God is drawn near to him. And as a result of that, he has a new definition in his life. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not looking for instant authority. He's not looking for instant recognition. He's looking to level the playing field with all of his readers. James, a servant of God. James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know that he took his own sweet time getting there. That was not something that happened for him as he was growing up. Not at all. And I'll show you why I believe that. The Bible teaches it. So it is an easy thing to wrap our heads around. But for a lot of people, it is difficult because they believe that Jesus grew up as an only child. Tradition and maybe a background that you had growing up taught you that. But that is not what the Bible says. Keep your finger there in James chapter 1. But go with me to the Gospel of Mark. The second Gospel of the New Testament. Matthew and then Mark. And we're going to be in the sixth chapter. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now here's what Mark writes. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now listen. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now we know that Jesus had at least four brothers. There's their names. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. There's their names. He has at least four brothers. And he also has some sisters. Now you have to understand this. They are his half-brothers and sisters. Because Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, but he was the biological father of all of these other children, along with Mary being their biological mother. The Holy Spirit was Jesus' biological father, and therefore these others that are listed here would be known as his half-brothers and sisters. But they all grew up together. They grew up in the same house, every one of them. Interestingly enough, the Bible teaches us that they did not believe in who he was. Even though they heard Mary's story, they heard Joseph's story, even though they heard Jesus talking about different things as they were doing life together, they still did not believe in who he was. Go with me to John chapter 7. Here's how we know that. This is just one of the places that exposes this. Verse 1. After this, they went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Did you catch that last one? Not even his brothers believed in him. This is one of those passages that you have to read with emotion or you will miss the meaning. If you read it like I just did, you would skip over it thinking that his brothers were just encouraging him to go to Judea, to go to Jerusalem, go to the center of population, go where the most people are at, and let them see you for who you are. But that's not it. 
when they were encouraging him to go to Judea, their words were dripping. They were dripping with sarcasm. Look at verse 3 again. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, dripping in sarcasm. And then the Bible says they didn't even believe in him. They didn't believe in him. Something happens between John chapter 7 and John chapter 21 that changes all of that. Changes all of that. The point that changes their unbelief into belief is the resurrection. When Jesus was crucified, they were still hanging on to their unbelief. They watched all of it happen. They watched Him mocked. They watched Him beaten. They watched Him scorned. And they watched Him crucified. But when He came out of the grave, everything changed. Everything changed. Let me show you how we know that. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 12. Jesus is just ascended into heaven. And this is what we read. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Now, let's just stop there for a second. That is the list of 11 disciples' names. Judas Iscariot is not with them. He had committed suicide just not long before this, a few weeks. Matthias has yet to be chosen. So that is the name of the 11 remaining apostles. Verse 14 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and I love this, and his brothers. And his brothers. The same ones that would mock him and say, why don't you go to Jerusalem? Show yourself off to everybody. Go work these miracles where everybody can see you. Why are you doing this here? It was the same as saying, why don't you go on the internet and show everybody what you can do? They were the ones who were were trying to shove him to Jerusalem almost as if they were trying to shove him out of the family, dripping in sarcasm. But now as Jesus has ascended into heaven and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, his brothers, those same four, were there. They were there. In fact, in the Greek language, that word brothers is the same word that we would use for family. So by all implication, his sisters were there too. They were all there. What happened? The resurrection happened. The resurrection happened. And because Jesus came out of that grave, all of a sudden His brothers that had mocked Him, that had pushed Him away, that were trying to put Him out in a sarcastic limelight, were faced with this question, now what are you going to do with Jesus? Now what are you going to do with Him? They're not the first ones that had to face that question. In fact, Jesus himself would pose it to his disciples. Join me in Matthew chapter 16 and you'll see it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Give you just a second to get there. Here's what Matthew writes. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now look at how all this played out. It started in this broad sense when Jesus said to them, So what do you hear? What are people saying about me? Who do they say I am? And they responded, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets. That's, that's what people are saying. And then Jesus made it very small and very personal very quickly. He said, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter was the first one to step up and what a great confession he had. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that's the first time we see this question presented in the Bible, but it is the same question that has been presented over and over and over again through all of history. What are you going to do with Christ? And James is a perfect example of how that question comes out. After the resurrection, James and the other brothers of Jesus and his sisters with them had to deal with that question. Who do you say I am? Now, what are you going to do with Christ? That is a question in my own opinion, and that's all this is, Phil's philosophy. You do not have to agree with it. You are free to disagree if you want to be wrong. That is okay. This is just my own philosophy. It's a question that I believe God puts into the heart of every person when he breathes life into us. And it is a question that we will all face at some point. For some people, that will come very early. For other people, it will come very late. And that's okay. In my extended philosophy, whether this is right or wrong, I don't know. This is where it gets a little bit goofy. It almost seems like there's a time release on this question. Because for some people, the question comes very early in life. For other people, it will wait until the 11th hour. That's okay. We saw just a a few weeks ago a man that waited until the 11th hour He'd been asked the question over and over and over again, and he had always responded in the negative. But in the 11th hour, he responded in the positive, the time release part of the question. But here's the thing. Not everybody responds in the positive. Not everybody responds the way Peter did. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not everyone responds the way James did and becomes a believer and is in the upper room waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not everybody responds that way, yet the same question is placed within the heart of every person when God breathes life into us. Now here's why I believe that. It's not just something I've grabbed out of the air. It's from Scripture. Because you see, Pilate will wrestle with the exact same question. The man entrusted with trying Jesus and the man that would send him to the cross. You're still in the Gospel of Matthew. Just turn over to the 27th chapter with me. The Pharisees have brought Jesus before him, wanting him crucified. Pilate has spent a lot of time with him, and Pilate does not believe that crucifixion is warranted. Jesus is not guilty of a death sentence, but he caves to peer pressure. 
He caves to the public opinion that surrounds him. He caves to a desire to protect his own way of life, but not before he asks the question. Now, this one comes out of his mouth, but it is my belief, my opinion, that it started in his heart and just made its way out so that we would hear it. This is verse 22 of chapter 27. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And that's what Pilate decided to do. Now, where did he get that question? Where did he get that question? Back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus would say to Peter that what he understood about Jesus didn't come from man. It was revealed to him by God. So more than likely, this question came directly from God in Pilate's life. What then shall I do with the one called Jesus, the Christ? What am I going to do with him? We all have to start with that question. If we want to draw near to God like James says, then we have to begin with that question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Him? Every person faces the same question. It is the great leveler of creation. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because if you want to know who God is and you want to draw near to Him, even James, the brother of Jesus, would tell you, you will have to do it through my brother. You will have to do it through Jesus. That's the only way. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. James figured it out. James figured it out. He knew that. And that's why he wrote the way he did. Right in the middle of his book, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But he starts out by introducing himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who Jesus is in my life, James says. He is my Lord. He is my brother, Jesus, and He is the Christ, the one we waited for. He found the answer, and He answered according to the positive. He answered in such a way that it would lead Him to heaven, and everything changed within Him. That's why He doesn't introduce Himself as the brother of Jesus. That was insignificant. He introduced Himself as a believer he introduced himself with Jesus as his Lord and Savior. What are you going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That question has to be answered by everybody. Answer it to the positive and decide that you want him to be your Lord and Savior. Then you follow the path of James and you develop a near relationship with him. You develop an ever-growing relationship with Him through what John Piper would refer to as a delight relationship. I really like the way he captures this. Piper would take the idea of a love relationship and magnify it into the realm of a delight relationship. Take a look at how he says this. Christians must put Jesus above all other things in life. It is impossible to be in a full relationship with God if a Christian values their job, health, or any other entity above God. Where Jesus is not treasured above all things, he is not trusted with saving faith. Faith receives Jesus as a treasured Savior, a treasured Lord. And if you say that a person can be a Christian, born again, justified, heaven-bound, enjoying eternal life, a person could be a Christian and have a higher treasure than Jesus. I do not know what Bible you're reading. Now that seems really pointed. It almost seems exclusive. 
But it is only pointed because that's what the Bible teaches. A delight relationship, one that says, I'm going to draw near to God as He draws near to me through His Son, Jesus Christ, is going to require this type of delight. Delighting in the Lord so much that we put Jesus above all other things in life. That's a love relationship magnified. Physical relationships in this world teach us what this looks like. The marriage relationship is given to us to teach us what this looks like. And I can understand it in those terms very easily because I've been in a delight relationship with my wife since 1987 when I first saw her. I fell in love with her when I first saw her. It took her a little longer to get on board. But I fell in love with her when I first saw her. And that's where delight began. That's where we started looking at one another saying, Wow, we want to spend the rest of our lives together, getting to know one another, experiencing everything together, adventuring our way through life. We want this to be what God intended it to be. That does not mean that it's a perfect relationship. Not at all. Because a delight relationship, as much as we work at it to be perfect, is not because we are human. In this side of heaven, we're not going to have perfect relationships. We still say things to each other a lot harsher than we should. We still take out the frustrations of the day on one another. We still dump other outward frustrations that have nothing to do with the other person onto each other. Because that's what happens sometimes in marriage. We still deal with the same things that everybody else deals with. But here's the thing in a delight relationship. When you have put another person above everything else, there is grace for those moments. There's a realization that in a delight relationship, these things don't have to be stoppers. We can work our way through it in grace and forgiveness. And that's what God does with us. And the same thing, listen, listen, the same thing is true with God. When we are in a delight relationship with Him, we will still make mistakes and there will be stumbles, but there is grace to cover those and God extends it to us. That's part of the delight relationship. Now you may say, hmm, I I really like where you're going with this preacher, but I'm not sure how we develop that type of relationship. And in fact, right now you might be thinking, tell me more about this whole idea in marriage before I even get into my relationship with God. How do I develop a delight relationship? I'm glad you're wondering about that. Here's 10 things to help you with that that come right out of the Bible. These come right out of the Bible. Take a look at these. Number one, you honor one another in everything. Number two, you accept each other's unique design. Number three, you encourage that uniqueness. Number four, you connect spiritually. Number five, you communicate from the heart. Number six, you connect physically. Number seven, you learn how to resolve conflict. Number eight, you deal with anger without destroying the other person. Number nine, you live in a culture of forgiveness. And number ten, you turn life's trials into blessings. That's how you develop the delight relationship. Now here's the fun part about this. You can take all ten of those things and apply them to a delight relationship with God. Look how this works. You honor God above everything else in your life. The light relationship follows. You accept each other's unique design, which means understanding that God designed you uniquely. He was your designer, your creator, so you accept who you are in this relationship. 
And then you encourage that uniqueness. We have to accept certain things about God. He designed us the way we are, so He's already accepted those. And He encourages that uniqueness within us. The giving of spiritual giftedness is a perfect example of how that works. You connect spiritually, that makes perfect sense. And you communicate from the heart. By the way, when you connect spiritually with God, even some of the uniqueness within your creation gets transformed. Because you understand how you were created. You understand some of the struggles that you deal with because life brought them your way. And then you allow God to go to work on those things. Even within your uniqueness, He doesn't leave you there. He transforms you. And as you connect spiritually, you want to become a reflection of who He is. So you communicate from the heart with Him saying, Lord, here I am laid bare before you. I want you to take these things that need to be changed, that need to be sharpened, that need to be transformed and go to work on them, God. And God does. You connect with Him physically. And some of you might say, I don't understand how that works. Well, that boils down to us loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. You connect with God with every part of who you are. You resolve conflict, which means sometimes... When you are upset with other people, it is necessary to resolve conflict to be near God. You deal with anger without destroying the other person. That means you deal with the anger that you might have towards the Lord because everybody gets angry with God. And if you've never been angry with God, you've not been very near to Him. Everybody gets angry with God. And God has big enough shoulders to deal with your anger. Don't ever think that your anger with God is sin. The Bible simply says, in your anger, do not sin. If you're angry with God, God's got big shoulders. Pour it out to Him, but be ready for His response when you do. (laughs) Number nine, you live in a culture of forgiveness. Make no mistake about this. You will never have to forgive God for anything. But you will have to accept God's forgiveness. And that can be the most difficult part of it. Number ten, turn life's trials into blessings. And I don't want to get too far ahead of where we're going because we're going to talk about that more next week. But you turn life's trials into blessings. And James will teach us how to do that. I'm watching Carrie Swedman's head shake over here right now, and Carrie knows this. She knows this. And over the course of 40 days, wasn't it on Facebook, she shared that whole journey, and it was pretty cool the way she did, turning life's trials into blessings. And we're going to show you how that works next week. So come back for that. When we develop this type of a desire and delight relationship with God that draws us near to Him, here's what we learned from James. You better expect the unexpected. When you are drawing near to God, you better expect the unexpected. Listen to that. Because you have just started a journey and an adventure with the Creator of the universe where every time you take a step towards Him, He'll take a step towards you and there is something unexpected around every corner. And James's life is a perfect example of that. Would you join me in the book of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. This is one of those places that we find a geode. When we split open this book, we find something wonderfully beautiful that if you read it too fast, you will skip over it. If you just blaze through this, this is all you will see. But if you, if you slow down enough, you're about to discover this. And this is pretty cool. What's this? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Paul is the author of these words. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Verse 6, Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now here it is, verse 7. Here's the geode. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Wow. Wow. Now, if you remember back in Mark chapter 6, we learned that Jesus had four brothers and some sisters. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we learned that right after the resurrection, Jesus appeared first to Peter, Cephas, and then to all of the apostles, the rest of the twelve. So that means that the Jameses that are listed in the names of the apostles had already seen him. Then when we get to verse 7, here's what we learn. I love this. I love this. Grab hold of the saddle horn. Here it is, right here. Then he showed himself to his oldest brother, who did not believe in him, who had mocked him. Right after the resurrection, Jesus went to James. Jesus went to James. How cool is that? And right there in that moment, James faced a question. Now what are you going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Now what are you going to do? Because here I am. And James responded to the positive. He became a believer. He was in the upper room after the ascension of Jesus into into heaven. He was waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. He was there. And from that point forward, everything changed in his life in such dramatic ways that he could have never, ever seen it coming. Here's what happened. James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, was leading out in that church, but he was the first of the apostles to be martyred. When he was martyred, in the book of Acts, we read all about it, it appears that James, the brother of Jesus, stepped forward and he filled the gap to the point that he would become, according to the Apostle Paul, along with Peter and John, John being the apostle that would live the longest, James, the brother of Jesus, in Galatians chapter 1, becomes the pillar of the church. He joins the apostles. But he doesn't just join the apostles. He begins a position where it appears that he is in authority over the apostles. In Acts chapter 15, when there is dissension among the apostles, they come to James in Jerusalem to settle it. And he settles it. He is the leader of the largest church in Christianity for years and years and years. And he will remain so until the year 62 A.D. When the Apostle Paul goes out and he takes a collection through all of the Macedonian churches and all of the surrounding churches and brings that offering back to Jerusalem, he gives it to James so that James disperses it among the people and makes sure that all of their needs are met. He is one of the leading forces in reconciling Judaism with Christianity. Because you see, James grew up as a Jew. He grew up going to the synagogue. He grew up traveling to Jerusalem and going to the temple. He grew up in the ways of God, knowing who God was. And right in the center of his book, he says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. But at the beginning of his book, he teaches us that that has to happen through his brother, Jesus Christ. In order to draw near to God, you're going to have to know who Jesus is. In order to know the Father, you have to know the Son. You have to deal with the question. 
And James' entire life, his entire life after the resurrection of Jesus Christ is focused right there with twist after twist after twist after twist coming. He never saw it coming. He never imagined that that's what his life would hold. And I'm not saying that your life will hold the same things as you draw near to God, but I'm telling you it will hold the same unexpected as you draw near to God and you develop a delight relationship with Him. You expect the unexpected. The Creator of the universe is going to do some cool things in your life. He is going to do some cool things with you. That's what happens. So now you're on this path of the unexpected with twists and turns waiting around every corner and all you have to do is look at James's life. Want to really explore it? Here's what you'll discover. The Bible doesn't teach us this, but church tradition does. James died in the year 62 AD. He died in Jerusalem, the place where he had invested his entire life. And he died at the temple when the Pharisees were so upset with his testimony, with his life, that they could not silence him. So the only option left was to take him up onto the top of the temple and throw him off. So they threw him off, but that didn't kill him. So they chased him down onto the rocks that he landed on where he was still alive. And church history tells us they beat him to death. And the last words out of his mouth were, you ready? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Where did he learn that? From his brother. From his brother. He was there and he saw it. And right after that, when Jesus rose from the grave and showed himself to James, James believed it. He lived in that forgiveness. He preached that forgiveness. Even as he was dying, he preached that forgiveness. Twist and turns around every corner because he learned how to delight in Jesus. And that's how he would introduce himself. The rest of this book will point us towards this very type of relationship, drawing near to God so that we'll know how to do it and we'll know what to look for when we do. You might say, boy, that sounds really good, Phil, and I, I, I want to do that. And it's the new year, and I, I want to draw near to God. I'm just not sure how to do that because I've tried before. I've set resolutions to draw near to God, and I, I've not pulled it off. Well, I want to give you five things to help with that as the worship team makes their way up here. So, Ray, come on up with your team. We'll do this really quick. Five things that will help you draw near to God. Number one, pick a few things to focus on at first. The biggest mistake that people make are setting goals that are too big. So they'll decide at the, the turn of the calendar when the new year starts, well, I'm going to read through the entire Bible this year. That's what I'm going to do. And they make it to Leviticus and then they bog down and they stop. And a few weeks after that they go, oh, well, we might as well just give up because we don't want to go back to Leviticus and, and fight our way through. So they stop. Well, Boil some things down and focus on just a few things at first, like this. Decide that you're going to read one book of the Bible. And if you've never done this before, start in the New Testament. I would suggest the Gospel of John. Start in the Gospel of John. And 21 days later, you can read one chapter a day, be done in 21 chapters. 21 days later, then choose the next book and go into the next book so that you're handling things in bite-sized pieces and you're not overwhelming yourself. Pick a few things. 
And that even comes into number two. Be specific with your goals for the year. To attend church or get involved in a salt group or read through the New Testament, start a prayer journal, serve in a ministry. You grab any of those things, but then you get very specific with it. So, like attending church, if you have not been attending church very much, decide that you're going to go for one month straight. Which, by the way, studies teach that if you miss church for three weeks in a row, that will be your habit. You will miss church. It will be very difficult to turn that around. So you decide that you're going to go every week for four weeks, five weeks, for one month. Get involved in a salt group. Here's the cool thing about that. Just sign up for a salt group and get involved in one and go. That's pretty easy. Just go. That's it. If you want to know how to get involved in a salt group, talk to Deanie right after the service is over and he'll help you with that. Read through the New Testament. We just talked about that. Start a prayer journal. If you are, are really wanting to get involved in praying now and you don't know how and you've tried over and over and over and over again, then start a prayer journal because it will keep you on a path. So start a prayer journal. Get involved in a ministry. Maybe you've not done that. Get involved in a ministry and use the gifts that God has given you. Talk to us, any of our staff, any of our elders. You talk to us and we'll help you find a ministry that you can get involved in in the church so that you're building up the church and you're a part of what's going on. Number three, identify the real reward of drawing near to God. The real reward is knowing and loving Jesus more today than you did yesterday. That's the real reward. And tomorrow, that's the the same reward. I am going to know Jesus and love Jesus more today than I did yesterday. And tomorrow, that's the real reward. And the next day, the real reward. And the day after that, the real reward. So that now you're drawing near. You're taking another step. And God's taking another step. You're getting closer and closer to Him. Number four, and this one's very difficult, seek out accountability. Seek out accountability. Tell some people what you're doing. Tell them why you're doing it and then ask them to hold you accountable. It's a pretty simple thing. This doesn't have to be a massive program. It is as simple as me calling my friend Josh and saying, Josh, here's what I'm thinking this year. I want to try to read through one book in the New Testament. I'm starting with the Gospel of John. I want you to know that so that you could pray for me and that's all I'm asking. And so Josh says, all right, I got it. I'm going to pray for you on this and I'm going to check in with you. And so Josh texts me and says, hey, how far are you? And I say, I'm on chapter 7. And Josh says, good on you, keep going. There it is. Josh is holding me accountable for what I'm doing. And Josh may say to me, hey, I'm starting a prayer journal and I want you to ask me how it's going. Okay, I'll be happy to. And I fire off a message to him in the middle of the week. Hey, Josh, what's in your your prayer journal? And he just tells me real quick what's in there and we are able to talk about it. And that's it. That's the accountability of it. Number five, pray two prayers every day. If you want to draw near to God, you pray two prayers every day. Number one, you pray to learn something new about Jesus. And number two, you pray to be used in some way by him. My personal experience says that when you pray these two prayers, God always responds. He always responds. When you pray that you will learn something new about him, that may happen as you open your Bible. It may happen as you make your way through your day. But God will teach you something new. And when you pray to be used by him, God is waiting for that prayer. He will use you. My own experience says, pray those two prayers, God will faithfully respond. You draw near to God, He'll draw near to you.